Welcome to the 36th Wonder Space Journey. It's great to have you on board. My name is Steve Cole, and since September 2020, I have been asking the same six questions to people from around the world. The questions revolve around life and wonder, places of reset, and stories of hopefulness. The setting for all of our interviews is a virtual window seat on the space station, 250 miles above Earth, where we see everything from a different perspective. This week, our orbit will take us from Ghana to Turkey. And to experience these views with us in this ultimate window seat, we welcome Tamsin Jones, who is a venture builder and an advocate for collaborative leadership. Tamsin is the co-founder of Workshop 17, which is a co-working environment in Cape Town that accelerates innovation and entrepreneurship. She is also the co-founder of The Boardroom Africa, which promotes exceptional female talent to boards across the continent. Tamsin also advises governments, CEO leadership communities, impact investors, women in leadership, and is a trustee of the Flip Floppy Initiative in Kenya, with a mission to eradicate single-use plastic. A shorter version of this episode, together with footage of this journey from Ghana to Turkey, can be found at ourwonder.space. I start by asking Tamsin, from this seat 250 miles above Earth, which place, city or country would you want us to fly over and why? Two years ago, almost kind of today-ish, um, I was sitting on a very small airplane flying um, right, very close to the Himalayas, um, perhaps dangerously close. My, my knuckles were kind of white. I was hanging on to the side of my chair and we were about to land in a place called Timpu in Bhutan. And I was traveling uh, to Bhutan on around my 40th birthday. I decided that instead of having a birthday party, I wanted to to use the opportunity to reflect in a place that was different, to walk in someone else's shoes. And so we were landing. It wasn't just me. It was a bunch of, of activists and filmmakers and impact investors. And we were coming to Bhutan to, to the Center for Gross National Happiness. And we were going to be talking about... Um, issues of what what is happiness? You know, what is your personal happiness? What is happiness of a country? What is happiness in a system? And for me, this wasn't academic. You know, at the time I was completely burnt out and and I was operating on empty and I'd lost the ability to answer this question for myself. So when we, we landed, we all sat in a big circle of strangers um, and were asked by our kind of guide from the center, Julia, to grab a, a rose petal and to put the rose petal into this bowl in the center of the group and to say what our intention was uh, for for this week together. And I said, um, inspiration and direction for the next 20 years of my life, you know, no, no small thing. <laughs> um, but what I did relearn there and, and why it's my touch point is, is I learned something that was instinctive, but I'd lost, which is what it is to be human. And what it is to value and practice connection with self and other people and nature. And so it was kind of like hitting the reset button on my computer. Um, and it's a very special place for me, a very important touchstone. 
Tamsin, give us a glimpse into your life story so far with an emphasis on what you are doing currently. I um, I grew up in, in South Australia, um, in a, started out in a country town. My dad was uh, a reverend. He was a kind of reverend that wore flip-flops and a t-shirt and shorts and he he had churches in pubs and skateboard churches and our house was full of activists. And when I was 10, one of my heroes was a particular activist called Max who had kind of long black hair and she had tassels on her clothes and she'd give me the most extraordinary giant hugs. And she used to be a prostitute and was helping other women who were in a similar situation to what she was in and to come out of prostitution and her life wasn't an easy life, you know, it was a life focused on, sort of tenaciously focused on social justice. And, you know, my dad would tell me that, um, you know, good things don't always happen to good people, but you do good kind of anyway. And this idea of tenacity and social justice has taken me really all over the world. Um it's not uncommon for people to look at my my story of my career and kind of get slightly puzzled, I think, at the various things I've done. But the thread is this tenacity and social justice. So it's taken me to working on the London Olympic regeneration with, you know, companies from the city and Canary Wharf, um, to Cape Town working on programs to prevent um, HIV transmission to babies, um, and to set up a couple of, of ventures and organizations that I've co-founded. Um, I'm really proud of um, a technology and innovation hub in Cape Town uh, called Workshop 17, which has 250 entrepreneurs, um, a coding academy for young people who, who can't afford to pay for that training themselves. Um, and it's really about inclusive innovation and, you know, following on from that, um, set up uh, a, a, another company with a business partner called The Boardroom Africa, which is really the leading solution for getting more women on boards across the continent. And we set it up because um, people were saying there were no women for board roles and we knew them. And I think this idea of tenacity and social justice means that kind of wherever I was with whatever I saw, there was always an opportunity to do something you know, do something good, do something that would have a real impact. And my passion has always been on building these things. And then when they're built, um, handing them over to someone that that is better at operationally running them because this kind of connection to what next and what could be done is so strong in me. Um, but there was a moment when one day when I realized I couldn't, I, I'd achieved a lot, but I couldn't feel my emotions anymore. And I wasn't really setting these healthy boundaries um, in my personal and professional life. And I didn't know it at the time, but, but these were signs of burnout, you know. And from talking to the thousands of women across our board network, I wasn't the only one experiencing this. I'm not the only leader. I'm sure I'm not the only person um, here, you know, experiencing this. Um, but I became really kind of curious about why, you know, why this tenacity and focus on social justice was burning me out and how could I have an impact differently? And so I I started kind of voraciously and slightly obsessively reading about this based on an experience I had of being with the Center for Gross National Happiness in Bhutan, but also looking, reading the Harvard Business School um, book on leadership theory and practice kind of cover to cover 
um, doing a, a, a coaching course focused on the body. And I started to, to sort of see that the tenacity that's got us here, you know, got the world to this point, that it got me to this point of building a number of successful initiatives is what was burning us out and, you know, and was being systematically supported and, and not just burning us out, but, but burning out our planet because we were kind of using an old operating model. And so I've become very, very interested in the last two years on focusing on new models for the way we lead that aren't just more regenerative or healthier, you know, but better. Because um, to find new solutions, you know, if I'm interested in this emerging new solution space, we've got to get really comfortable with listening and not knowing the answer. And, and how can we listen if we can't hear our own sense of the world anymore because we're so busy doing? And so, you know, sometimes when people think about that, they're like, well, that's kind of all well and good. I get that it's healthy for you, but are people kind of in boardrooms really taking this seriously? You know, this idea of sensing seriously and and connecting with nature and our bodies and these new models and ways of working. And I can honestly say, you know, yes, I'm hearing more and more these conversations about consciousness in the boardroom, sort of this ability to um, to to be able to hold multiple truths and to listen. And these concepts like stakeholder capitalism, where the stakeholders are more important to business than um, the shareholders because it's about the long-term interests of the planet, um, you know, these are critical. And so I, um, at the moment, I'm very focused on creating a, a new um, training focused on leading with the body and the mind. So how do we combine and understand our sense of the world and our sense of who we are, which is something we do to make decisions all the time, but isn't acknowledged. Um, and also um, more climate collective leadership models. So I'm working very uh, hard on an initiative, a collaborative initiative called the Rallying Cry, which is bringing women who are climate leaders in running businesses into conversations about what policy shifts need to happen not just from a data standpoint, but from their personal experience of soil quality and the need to sustain their communities, you know, not just for one or two generations, but for, for many. So it's an emerging space for me because I think that's where the world is right now. Um, but with all of that, there are lots and lots of uh, opportunities for leaders to get together and get more involved. And so I'll be developing a lot more of support for leaders that are wanting to do that over the next six to 12 months. Where on earth is your place of reset or recharge? My place of reset is always in nature. And I was lucky enough to, to live in a place that was really all about nature. And that was Cape Town in South Africa. I would sit on... Um, the deck of my house, watching pods of hundreds of dolphins and and whales swimming by, and driving and seeing Table Mountain, you know, every morning, and it was the best thing you could possibly imagine into the world every day with this connection to nature that wasn't just a holiday or a moment in time that was just always there, you know. They call it the mother city because of Table Mountain. It sits in the center and it grounds you. And from Workshop 17, which is an innovation hub that I co-founded in Cape Town, you could sit and work and watch 
what they call the tablecloth, which is this cloud cover that would come over Table Mountain every day, just slowly coming across the mountain and sliding down the other side. And every time that happened, it was a reminder of how connected we are to each other and to nature. What wonder of the natural world excites you the most? A wonder of the natural world that excites me is giant manta rays. I am obsessed, obsessed with them. They're like angels to me. Um, I love scuba diving and I've been to see uh, manta rays in Mozambique many times and in the Maldives. And when I go to Mozambique, to a place called um, Tofu Bay, you go out on this little this little dinghy boat and you have, it's a double dive, so you take two dive tanks with you and it's super rough and I get very seasick. So the whole way out to the reef, I am seasick the whole time and I don't even care because I know that when I put my reg in my mouth and I dive into that, you know, cold water and start going down, I'm going to see devil rays and manta rays and the, the current is just pumping and you just drop onto this this beautiful reef and, and lock um, into the reef so you're attached and there's a lot of current so you're kind of floating and then these mantas, these giant mantas just come and hover right n- near you over the reef to be cleaned. And so it's the most extraordinary thing and I never, ever want to come up when I'm down there with them. Tamsin, what is your story of hopefulness that's not your own about a person, business or non-profit who are doing amazing things for the world? My story of hopefulness is a boat. And it's not just any boat, it's a Dow boat, which is a traditional boat. And it's not just any Dow boat, although it's made by one of the most skilled Dow boat builders in East Africa. It's a boat made of plastic that's been collected from the oceans and clad in 30,000 flip-flops, which is the footwear of 3 billion people. And the most common item found on our beach cleanups in Kenya um, And this boat is called the Flip Floppy and it's nine metres long and weighs seven tonnes and it's the first time this has ever been done. The Flip Floppy is um, an icon really in in East Africa um, to advocate for ending single-use plastic and also for, for reusing the plastic that's being collected. For every one piece of plastic collected in Kenya, you know, there are five more pieces that will wash in And so we realise that this is something that needs to be changing both on uh, a local level in Kenya in terms of collecting the plastic and reusing, but also on a global level in terms of stemming that flow. And so the Flip Floppy was created by by, um, Ben and Depeche and and a group of people and Ali Skander, who's a boat builder on, on an island called Lamu. And they've taken this boat to various places across East Africa. And their folk, most recently that has been um, Lake Victoria. Um, but previous to that, it, it travelled over 500 kilometres from Lamu to Kenya to Zanzibar to Tanzania. And every time it travels, it stops at communities along the way and attracts, you know, hundreds of millions of people <laughs> to engage with it because it... Um, 
I think some of the challenges with um, advocacy for ocean health, which we all know is important, and ending single-use plastics, which we all know is important, is that sometimes it can feel, you know, like a stick, you know? And the flip-floppy is one of the most vibrant, optimistic icons. If you see it visually, you smile. And so all of a sudden, the efforts to create this change come with music and this boat and this sense of hopefulness and this sense of what can be done, um, as you can see through this boat, which is a world first. Um, but it won't be the only world first. You know, the, the organization is creating an innovation hub and a series of innovation hubs along the coastline of East Africa, which are focused on using the plastics that are being collected, which have already been piled up and are ready to go. And we're looking for supporters, you know, if anyone would like to um, help with looking at uh, ways of turning this plastic into products, that the usable products where we're looking for partnerships. But the idea is to create local ways of creating products that can be used in the local market until we can end single-use plastic. Sadly, we heard just a few weeks ago that Ali Skander, the boat builder, his, um, his workshop where the flip-floppy was built and where future flip-floppies will be built and where a lot of other boat building takes place as well has just been burnt down. So we're, we're really um, always hopeful and raising money for that. So if people are keen to support this initiative, um, they can go to the flip-floppy website and and, and lend some support to this grassroots movement across East Africa. Finally, as we prepare to re-enter, what insight, wisdom or question would you like to share with us? As we prepare to re-enter, um, the wisdom and insight that I'd like to share is to let you know that you can trust your, your body, your senses, your instincts. I think so often in the world we live in, and certainly historically, we've operated from the basis of knowing, of data, um, of our mind being the most prominent um, decision-making um, part of our, our anatomy. And actually, that's not, that's not correct. Um, we know now through neuroscience that Quite often, our senses tell our body what to do. Our hand might tell our mind what to do. Our stomach might tell our mind what to do. Our senses are quite often much more attuned to our historic experiences than our mind. Our mind can only access a tiny portion of what we've experienced in our life. Top leaders around the world, they, they know this. They're making intuitive decisions all the time but we don't have a great language for it. And sometimes we forget to sense into it. And what I would, what I would, what I think is the most important skill of the current century is our ability to not know the answer. And to do this, we need to get comfortable and skilled with sensation. You know, when we're uncomfortable, we need to be able to sit with that and go, what is that telling me? Because maybe it's telling you that it's the wrong answer, or maybe it's telling you that historically, Something has been challenging for you, or maybe it's telling you that you're tired, but it's important to understand those things because whether we do or not, they're informing our decision-making. And actually, if we're going to change the way that policymakers and business leaders and financiers and executives actually think and look at the world around them, we need to move from a tunnel vision to a lateral vision, you know, from data to understanding and connection. And 
So this is something that maybe we can just do a little brief exercise in. So if you think about um, a moment when you're in nature, or if you are in nature, maybe take a moment to soak it in through all of your senses, or think about a moment in your life when connection to nature has been greatest for you, and just take a deep breath. Pretend you're there. Think about it. Smell the air and hear the sounds of that place and remember what it feels like on your skin. Is it hot or cold? Is it windy? This is as simple as it is to feel and understand sensation, and it's highly, highly good for us to understand how we're feeling and how we're understanding our environment. And when we can do that, we become much more able to be present with other people and to listen. And this connection to nature and each other is actually how change happens in healthy ways. And it's, um, as I say, it's how we remain present during hard and complex conversations. And in truth, like what it is to be human is to be connected to ourselves and to others and to nature. And so this is the muscle, I think, you know, that we need to be practicing and take your time to build that um, because these sensing muscles may be telling you something really important. More information about Tamsin can be found at tamsinjones.com. In her story of hopefulness, Tamsin talks about Flip Floppy, and more information can be found at theflipfloppy.com. To listen to the previous 35 Wonderspace interviews, the website is ourwonder.space. I want to thank Tamsin for joining us on this Wonderspace. And I hope you can join us next week for more wonders and stories of hopefulness.